It's good to be here. Have you on? Thank you. Yeah. AKA Cognazor. <laughs> Cognazor. <laughs> Cognazor. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You do the Buff End podcast. You've been doing that for quite a while. Um, yeah. You're one of the few people on Twitter who I think is not um, worsening the ecology. <laughs> And I think we'll I talk a little bit that's, about that. <laughs> that's quite a compliment, actually. <laughs> a lot of people are worsening the ecology for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who, who are, you know, improving it greatly. Uh, but I, I appreciate not being, a, not being perceived as a worsener. That would, I would just bury my head in the sand if that was the case. <laughs> I was, um, I was thinking to open by asking you question you probably had a hundred times which is what is a what is a both and but um actually i think it would be more interesting to to talk about the the mimetic ecology um mm -hmm. straight up um because i was having this conversation with tim adeline last week and we were talking about what um what does like a proper exercise of responsibility toward the ecology look like and I was kind of weighing these two standpoints that I've been wrestling with in myself, which is like, um, on the one hand, kind of going through these cognitive pathways of having like an idea, a propositional idea come up and then like sort of testing it and realizing it's not going to improve things mm -hmm. or tweeting it and then deleting it occasionally, but mostly like mm -hmm. vast majority is filtered out. Um, and then I just kind of think, like the medium doesn't afford me um, the capacity to communicate like non-linear ideas or to communicate the connections between things or to give the, to, to communicate sort of warm data with integrity rather than cold data. And it's like, even when I'm trying my most, um, I'm finding myself drawn into rival risk kind of things. But mm -hmm. you, I know, have sort of struck the other pathway, which is to try and craft a mimetic artifact, tweets and blogs and so forth, which open up um, doorways. And I think you also bring like a personal, like you bring a personal self to it and it feels as if you're kind of talking to like the way you're tweeting to me it feels like you're talking to like a smaller room of people mm -hmm. very often the way we tweet is like the entire like sharing the entire world right so, right right mm -hmm. i mean what's your philosophy like how have you kind of wrestled with that Ooh, that's a big question um well i'll state right out that um i've you know, I've, I've done things on Twitter that I'm not proud of uh, in terms of beefing with people, <laughs> uh, getting into arguments. I've done all of that. Um, and, you know, uh, so there, so there's that. Uh, but I think I've learned from it. And I actually, this is all kind of preface, but I kind of have a philosophy, you know, this notion of medic mediation that you know one valid part of a medic mediation is actually beefing with people sometimes and, and having some tension mm. uh, you know you don't want it to be so 
you know, you don't want to create these kind of uh, irreversible breaks or fissures in, in relationships. So you have to be a little careful. But, you know, I, I like to poke at people sometimes, you know, and I like to put out sometimes what I know are partial perspectives to trigger people. Uh, and then I'll, you know, both end the heck out of that and be like, well, yeah, I, you know, you're, you're right too, you know. And so, you know, I kind of have a whole, I don't want to say strategy because a lot of it's just kind of like I'm just responding to the moment. You know, it's, it's a lot of it's just kind of intuitive. But, you know, in terms of building relationships and bonding, um, you know, some of my closest relationships have been with people that I've, you know, had some had some harsh words back and forth with. Uh, in terms of, let's see, I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what the question is. <laughs> well, what do you uh, think the question? Like, uh, what's it? so what maybe my, you could refine well, what's yeah. most interesting to you about about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, like. Well, I think I kind of interpret the question is like, what kind of drives my, my approach to this digital online space? And this could be Twitter, this could be podcasts, um, you know, private, there's, you know, private um, chat forums, things of that nature. Uh, I think it's, for me, it's balancing. Uh, I do have, you know, very strong points of views in some areas. Uh, but balancing that with with this um, and and balancing that with this notion of mimetic mediation, where you know I also um, recognize, you know, at least in theory, that I have major blind spots, um, and we all have major blind spots. You know, we all—it's um, kind of a, the blind monk in the elephant situation, if you're familiar with that metaphor. Um, or they're all touching the elephant, but they don't know it's an elephant or they're all touching different parts of the elephant and, you know, the person touching the tail is like, reality is like a bushy, you know, scratchy, <laughs> you know, soft feathery thing. And the person touching the tusk is no, it's sharp, you know, it's, and everybody's fighting over the nature of reality with the big R and, and perhaps, you know, we're all touching different parts of this reality. And if we could learn to communicate better um, to, uh, to have conversations, dialogos, we could get a, in touch with a, you know, collectively, you know, with a, with a more complete view of reality. Of course, there's people who reject that whole premise, you know, the, the pluriverse people and say, no, actually we're, you know, we're all living in different realities. And that's kind of a very, in my opinion, that's a very kind of hyper postmodern way to view things. Um, so that's, that's just an aside, but you also mentioned kind of the personal elements and, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I find very valuable, you know, knowing not just what people think, but who is the person that's having these thoughts, right? And so, you know, when I apply that to myself, you know, I do try to express, you know, kind of, you know, sometimes I just make outright propositional statements and, you know, that's that. Um, but I often, you know, I'm, I'm very... Um, you know, I find phenomenology, phenomenology very important and, and who is the person who's, who's speaking, you know, where are they coming from? Um, you know, what is their, where, you know, where are they standing? And, 
and and just you know so that's kind of you know what i like to see and so i i try to you know express that in, in how i behave online but but it's also you know just in terms of contemplative practice you know uh, in terms of spiritual growth you know development things of this nature it's important to be a little vulnerable to express yourself to mm. you know to to not be this detached third party right uh, but to actually you know um I'm trying to think of, I don't know if there's another way, you know, to, to say it other than what I, what, what I already have. Um, Do you think that there's, um, there's like a, a relationship between the, the coming forth with vulnerability and the, the fallibility of it? Like what hmm. we're not kind of presenting as, it like it feels to me in the converse that the people who are who are coming forward as like trying to have like the bulletproof position and always be right are also like not necessarily personally like putting vulnerability on the line, especially that like big public fifty hundred k um, following kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Um... Yeah, I think, I think it could be viewed that way and, and it, it would make sense. Um, you know, for me, a lot of it's just kind of therapeutic, right? And so oftentimes I'm not expressing a little bit more personal um, or just a phenomenological statement, right? Like I, I, I love, you know, I love speaking in metaphor. I love speaking metaphorically about the, the, the nature of how I'm experiencing, you know, of how I'm experiencing in that moment. Right. You know, it's so it's kind of maybe a poetic inclination and it's just kind of a, you know, it, it's more of just an urge that it feels good to do that. You know, and then, of course, I could, you know, I can make an argument that, you know, this is this is what, what you're saying, you know, of like that vulnerability is associated with, with fallibility. And I totally agree with that. But, you know, that that's kind of like a. Uh, that's kind of like a, a post hoc rationalization in a way, but I feed that rationalization back into my motivation for doing it, which is like, you know, it feels good. And I think it's good for this whole mimetic ecology as well. Yeah. Something about um, sort of more poetic language and also artwork generally as art as a medium mm -hmm. which so in the context of like the kind of um mimetic like flaming dumpster of the last two weeks or so um i came across this artwork on uh instagram by an artist whose name i can't i'll throw it up in the show notes or something but he did this really like evocative artwork and it was kind of the original painting of George Washington um, that was painted for the dollar bill and so allegedly this was kind of like painted um, but then there was like a whole part of the canvas that wasn't colored because it was for the dollar bill painting and then he's kind of moved that and it kind of like moves seamlessly into like this picture of these like um, like cotton picking plantation workers um, like African slaves um, right. African-American slaves 
And what struck me about it relative to everything else that I had seen is that it seemed to hold all of the truth in the situation in some way for me, in a way that the memes didn't. And there's something yeah. about the quality of art that's like interpretive um, and provokes a more like interpretive, intuitive sense in which like mm-hmm. in that painting, I could like hold like all the pieces. Like it was, I could hold the pieces of like the greatness of the founding fathers. And I could also hold like the original sin of slavery and the life of the, the poor um, who want that kind of aristocratic class and everything. So, and just another kind of piece to tag on with this. So I used to spend a lot of time in the kind of more political, like a lot of my Twitter world was politicians and journalists and think tank people. Me too. Um, <laughs> and so I have this notion that part of the reason things were going squirrely was that the ecology itself was so hyper-focused on, um, on news and kind of lacking any of the other aspects of life. Like you've been posting a lot of like nature and like day-to-day stuff. Um, I wondered whether like having more art and having more of like other aspects of life in the domain wouldn't move it away from this like, because right now it's like, very rivalrous informational communication mm. combined with very sarcastic humor. Mm. And that's basically right. the two parts that are allowed and it creates a real simple yeah. kind of. Yeah. There's spec- a lot of, there's a lot of irony posting, uh, sometimes what people call ship posting. And, you know, I, I think it's almost, that's almost a, a reaction to to this kind of very limited frame by which we can express ourselves on certain platforms. Um, you can also, of course, you can get away with a lot of, you know, you, you can you can embed your, your true feelings into things. Ironically, you know, irony is kind of like a, it's kind of like a mimetic vehicle to get your real ideas out there, but in a way that's mm. not threatening because it's, it's supposed to be funny, right? And that's kind of what memes you know, when you, when you hear about quote unquote mimetic engineers and how they use memes, you know, the idea is that, you know, it's basically a Trojan horse, right? Uh, of your ideas. Uh, it's like the, the humor uh, takes down people's defenses and, and then you can, you know, you can plant your ideas there. Um, but you know that's that's a um, a little bit of an aside. I I, I I agree that, and I think one thing that I I try and cultivate, and also the accounts I follow, is it, it you know it is kind of like again I, the ecology metaphor is kind of dominant for me in, in many areas of life. So I, I might overuse it, but you know this kind of robust ecology of, of many different types of expression to the extent that you can on social media, right? Um, it's inherently, because it's disembodied, you know, it's inherently disembodied to some degree. Um, and so the extent that you can on social media platform, you know, being able to braid in propositional ideas, you know, p- 
poetry, uh, personal kind of reflections, vulnerability, aesthetics. You can just kind of, you know, tie that in, you know, into this kind of, I like this uh, metaphor of braid, braiding it in. Um, you know, that's, to me, that that's something like, like if social media is going to be a useful contribution to the cultivation of collective intelligence, in addition to what I would call memetic mediation, like that's, that's, that's going to be what it is, right? It's, it's going to be, you know, the permission to, to be multidimensional uh, and not just multidimensional in terms of the contradictions we hold in terms of what we believe, which I also think, you know, oftentimes we, we don't feel comfortable expressing contradictory ideas or contradictions, like you mentioned in the, in the painting. Um, you know, but, you know, the ideal state is, you know, both propositionally being able to express contradictory ideas and not knowing fallibility, but, but also, you know, other modes of expression and being, which are these, these more personal aesthetic uh, modes, I would say. I keep on like cycling back to try and think of a way of like renaming social media that will actually reveal what it is. And I keep failing in the endeavor, but I feel this urge that it needs to be like re-designated as like market captured network media <laughs> or something like. Right, 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 right. Like what you're describing is a beautiful articulation of what might be done within the constraints of mm-hmm. of the like i don't want to be too polemical but it Sounds seems to me it. that there's like not enough people just talking about the the constraints of the medium itself and how like mm-hmm. lacking in ambition or vision or like there's no there's no artistry in the medium Mm. itself and it's so uh, we were talking before about kind of the different aesthetics of nature and man-made constructions facebook and twitter is like a perfect epitomization of that like rigid square like lines like everything Mm -hmm. all information is passed through the linear scroll feed whatever it is um and there's no like the things that designate what should be salient to you are such like limited metrics and also mm-hmm. so subject to capture. Mm-hmm. Like I had, I had notions that we might have something more like a, like a web kind of like a, a more natural sort of formation. Cause I'm sure at the level of like, if you're just looking at the, like I'm sure there's data scientists who map the, network nodes of twitter and actually it looks yeah. very like natural i've seen that there, there, people have done it and they, they've actually posted it online yeah it's it's very yeah it, no that there's there's a lot of and i'm sure that the twitter engineers do that all the time and, and i'm sure they're always talking about how can we tweak the algorithms to you know to either encourage the mimetic environment that we want to emerge. So this is kind of like the soft paternalism 
uh, or make money, right? And of course, you know, I think what you're describing with, with you know, Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms is that, you know, it's, and, and many people have discussed this, uh, but it's optimized to harvest your attention, right? To sell ads. Um, and so that is, that is kind of like the elephant in the room, in my mind, in terms of the constraints of the medium is, is the overall goals of the system are not aligned with our each individual goals, right? Yeah, when I see um, my dad on Facebook, or mm -hmm. I think like a lot of people of the, the generation in the sort of 40s, 50s and above, who have been captured by this medium. I think this yeah. is going to be looked back on like, like cigarettes sold to pregnant women in the 1940s or whatever. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. going to be, uh, it's going to be that. And it's, mm -hmm. holy shit. The amount of people just spending hours on this, um, like informational slot machine and the mm -hmm. blue, the blue light of it is kind of like slowly eating away at your spirit, you know? Right. Um, but what, what might it be? I don't know, the, at a more like philosophical or at another level, if we think about the nature of reality itself, it's very rich, continually changing um continually revealing like what are the like it has horizons which are always sort of tapering off into into mystery um which you can see most apparently if you just go into um nature and look anywhere closely um what what might it look like if that was what the aesthetic goal of the information ecology was um you know what like what might it be to to have something which intentionally is revealing the connections between things rather than giving you everything in a linear and aggravating fashion right. like like what if it would reveal if it was revealing yeah. and there was like a tapering off um like I could see like, oh, I understand this domain, but then I can see the webbing of, you know, like a Wikipedia kind of web of all of the related things and the history and going back in time and all of that. Have you, have you heard of Rome research? R-O-A-M. Uh, it's, it's kind of like this new hot um, note-taking uh, software. Um, it's, it's associated with what has been termed second brain, kind of creating your own exocortex. Uh, and uh, it's, it kind of follows along what you're describing. It uses the, these hyperlinks that allow you to basically, you know, kind of link back to, you know, to different, you know, you have a certain phrase or word. And if you're filling your notes and you're, you're hyperlinking them, basically you can, creating this web of knowledge and when you later on when you click on a term it brings you up brings up all of the different um you know things you've written about in the past um and all the related associations with it and you can visualize it 
graphically. Uh, it's not, it's not so much, I know you can create like public rooms. Um, and so I think they're, they're working on making it more of a social media, you know, the, the social interactive component. Um, I think right now it's mainly individuals doing this and then sharing it with others. Um, so there's, you know, I, I, I definitely, what you're describing, I, I think a lot of the good news, the good news is that I think a lot of people are realizing what we're talking about and, and are, and are working, you know, to create an alternative, um, You know, what comes to mind also is kind of, you know, this whole suite of like peer to peer technology, right? That's, that's explicitly, you know, against the, uh, the advertising model of current media platforms that seems to corrupt, you know, uh, the incentive structure of basically the whole culture. Uh, what kind of uh, platforms are you talking about? Uh, I mean, I haven't, I mean, they're all kind of very, in their incipient phase. Um, I have in mind things like Holochain, um, you know, perhaps also something like Herbit. Um, of course, Herbit is, is um, people are a little sketchy about Herbit because um, it is, it's kind of the pre preferred platform of neo-reactionaries <laughs> in general. Uh, and so people, you know. Um, Which I have no idea the, what a Holochain uh, so you, if you could sort of. Well, I'm not an expert in Holochain. We, we did interview somebody, a uh, commercial director of Holo, which is um, part of Holo, you know, that, that, that universe. I'm probably not the per best person to talk about it. Um, I know on the Jim Rutt podcast, he, he recently interviewed one of the, you know, founders of, you know, uh, of Holochain and he, he can describe it a lot better, but I mean, I think the basic idea is that it's just more, it's more decentralized. So it's, you know, it's, um, it's, it kind of distinguishes itself from something like blockchain. Uh, blockchain is kind of like, you know, uh, more of a centralized environment where things go on the blockchain and then they're forever. And something like Holochain is more of like, uh, you own, you own your own data, but you can share it with others and you can interact with each other's content, you know, in, in different types of applications, both creative, but also practical, you know, for example, you know, could be maybe used to cultivate a mutual aid network or respond to a disaster, you know, something like that. Mm. Uh, but I am, you know, uh, in general, I'm, I, I haven't actually played with it, with, with this, with the software myself. So in general, I'm quite ignorant. <laughs> There's much better people to talk to about that who I could recommend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, hmm. as we're talking about this sort of like ambition or vision for what this like visualization that kind of mm. corresponds somehow with our cognition, um, mm -hmm. or at least some people's cognition, um, being drawn to that. Um, and so it's kind of a strange thing to 
come to understand when you're kind of encountering these um, systems thinkers and other people who are doing like this multi-dimensional modes of thinking or like working with um, sort of multi-dimensional objects uh, mm. within their own minds. Um, mm. and just the feeling of getting to like encountering something where you're like, how the fuck um, mm. do I go about cognize, cognizing this? Um, There's another axis that I think is is interesting here. And I, so I've, I've actually had some critiques of, of these second brain endeavors um, or this kind of web of knowledge endeavors. And, and they're not, they're not like, um, you know, they're not deal breaker techniques, uh, critiques, but it, it, for me, it revolves around, you know, what is, what is the optimal dynamic balance between embodied cognition of actually really deeply understanding concepts, letting it actually reorganize your cognition. Um, and that's a very, you know, body process. Um, you know, it's the whole organism is restructuring when, you know, for me, like if I have a, a, um, a really interesting insight. There's, there's usually some kind of physical shift, some energetic shift in the body. Um, you know, and, and I mean, this speaks to kind of, a more non-dual or an activist understanding of mind and body as, as being inseparable. Right. And, um, but my, my concern with the second brain stuff, even though I, I, I think if this concern is addressed, then it's great is that, you know, there can be a tendency if you're, especially if you're a very disembodied person, um, you know, you're not in touch with your body, you're, you're always in your head that you're just kind of throwing things out there into this web of knowledge, uh, you know, in order to, you know, with the intention that I'm going to come back to it and, and see the mystery of the universe, you know, somewhere in between these connections. Uh, but you're not, you're kind of offloading it. It's kind of like how, you know, you know, how phones, because we can just Google everything. We're not actually, you know, we, we might without our phones actually be stupider right? Because we're just so used to offloading our cognition to something else. And so I do worry about this offloading cognition and, you know, and because it's digital, in some sense, it's disembodied. And so I, I think, you know, it, as long as there's this kind of iterative process of creating this kind of external artifact web of knowledge, which is, which can be great with actually, you know, you know, allowing it to, to really change you, um, you know, it has to be both. And if it's not both, I, I'm actually very, very pessimistic about second brain technology in general. But if it, but if it is both, then I'm very optimistic. Yeah, I've, as you're saying, I'm just thinking about like really, really intelligent people that I've encountered who have these enormously complex mm -hmm. constructions in their mind, but then like, some sort of um, like festering emotional like fissure, um, and so and so the sh the shifting in the emotional state, which is not being like worked with, could be like completely mm -hmm. altering the way that they're relating to these models um, in, in a polarizing way, even. Um, and I can I can relate to that. Um, you know I. I 
I, I think I spent most of my 20s in a very disembodied state. Um, and I was very, I had a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of emotional blockages um, is how it felt like. And well, one, I think I, I had this, uh, there's this one, you know, I remember I was studying for an exam once um, and I was, I had this kind of very clear emotional blockage where like the right side of my head and face was like very contracted and it had to do with like, you know, some complex related to guilt or something else. And I noticed that my problem solving capabilities, my creative problem solving capabilities, you know, was kind of blocked off. Like I couldn't, you know, like I could only kind of think very linearly, linearly, like, you know, if this, then this, then this, and I can kind of go down that way, but I couldn't actually kind of, you know, jump out of that system to look at it and see if there was like another way to approach it, you know, another, another lens. And I felt actually, because I had this, you know, this kind of psychological dissonance and, and also physical contraction, it actually reduced my ability to draw connections. Um, so, so, so there's that. Um, uh, what was it? So that, so there was one other thing I was going to say, but um, now it's escaping me. It was, it was responding more directly to, to what you had said. Um, I mean, so that's spot on. That's spot yeah. on for me. Just like, yeah. If I think about, if you take it away from like how you know cognition about complex problems or or the world, and you just think about your own um, your own mapping out of your own life's potential, when you mm. when you're experiencing some emotion um, or some fear or something which is causing that contraction, it really does have the, like the, the emotional contraction contracts all of those possibilities in your like kind of branching mapping of all the potentials and suddenly it's like this. And so as you're saying that, it's just becoming more and more clear to me how um, related the two of those things are. And also, Well, you have to wonder how much, how much of our um, seeming scarcity of possibilities for the future, like as a civilization draws from the, the felt embodied contraction that just comes from living in the, the society that we've made combined with, you know, the trauma or the world wars and industrial revolution and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that. I think that that kind of gets at the second thing I was, I was going to say, which, which is just basically that, you know, the danger of social media of second brain, even web of knowledge is, is that it's, it's kind of, it can be an excuse not to do self work, not to have a contemplative life. And, and not to actually, you know, um, become more integrated within yourself to different aspects of, you know, different sensibilities within yourself, different ways of being and modes of being. And I see that, yeah, is very dangerous for, for our culture um, because 
you know, you have this, you have this combination of the culture and this is associated with, with social media, I think of, you know, culture revolution is speeding up, but it's, it's, it's speeding up in different directions. There's, you know, Robert, Robert Anton Wilson had this, had this concept of reality tunnels. And I see right now there's what, what I call reality tunnel divergence, which is we're all kind of, and, and algorithms, you know, uh, it's like algorithmically fueled, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into these certain reality tunnels and that, and, and other people are getting into their reality tunnels and they're kind of diverging. Right. And, you know, if you think of the analogy of, well, this is our collective brain, right. Society, you know, in human society in general, is, you know, and the meme space is kind of our collective brain. This is just an analogy, you know, whether it could be taken is literally is, spe- is speculative. Right. Um, but, you know, it's very schizophrenic. Right. And it's, it's, um, you know, if we look at the model of the brain itself, you know, if you don't have, uh, you know, if, if you, if you don't have different parts of the brain talking to each other, mm. that's a recipe for disaster for the, <laughs> for the whole organism. Right. Um, and I kind of see that with, you know, you know, with the direction that cultural evolution is taking is that it's, we're more interconnected than ever, and yet we're more disconnected than ever at the same time. And unless we can find a way to, you know, to start encouraging signals across these these boundaries, you know, what what is what has been termed mimetic tribes, then I don't think we're going to make it. Um, we're not going to, you know. But if we do, if if we if we can figure out a way to facilitate signal transfer i'm using very kind of mechanical analogies but it's just basically means relating to each other you know people from relating to people from different backgrounds and histories and sets of trauma uh and and all of these things you know um you know humanity is well i mean in terms of ecology we're driving the ecology of the planet off a cliff uh but there's many other you know um many other existential risks as well. But for me, ecology is the most salient. Right, as we were talking about that, I was just like, what would be, uh, I mean, at the individual level, if you were working with that individual, you might give them a, a large dose of psilocybin or something <laughs> in order to cause uh, that sort of reconnection of all of the, of the synapses yeah. and opening those new pathways. Um, but then, you know, as with, as with psilocybin therapy, you'd also want a kind of, uh, follow up day to day integrative things that were kind of building more integration, um, and attunement day to day. Um, and I would like to see sort of how that maps onto the, the role of the mimetic mediator but also, yeah, I just want to really stress that like growing recognition. I'm feeling that those things that I thought were unrelated to my intellectual um, understanding, things like dancing or drawing, creating art have become like, it's become more and more clear how those are interrelated and how like, in terms of embodied cognition, like the ability to kind of like dance and like get into that, like really like 
have a feeling for those subtle rhythmic um, energies in the body. Mm -hmm. And now just thinking, well, maybe that, maybe part of that, um, part of that psilocybin for the collective um, mind is something to do with a big dance type. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the kind of cutting edge discourse like the stuff that Jamie Wheel and others are talking about is a kind of combination of of these personal sovereignty practices and then like these collective um ecstasis and catharsis kind of um activities mm -hmm. well it's interesting because this this gets us into you know the the role of religion right because in the past religion provided all of these services for people, right? Um, and I think, you know, in the last, well, you know, the last number of decades, uh, we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? Um, you know, all the way up to the new atheists, you know, making their obscene statements about how religion is good for nothing and, you know, worse than useless and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, this is, I think it, this might be, you know, one of the questions about surviving the Anthropocene, so to speak, um, is, you know, how, it, you know, in one sense, it, it's kind of like, you know, you know, why did we in mass abandon religion? You know, many people still haven't, but at least of the more educated set they have, um, you know, and, and, you know, much of it was due to, you know, developments in science and uh, things of that nature. And, and so, you know, the question is like, how do you integrate the scientific mode of being with the religious mode of being, right? And, and, and what is it about the religious mode of being and the, 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 evolu the cultural evolution of religion that was so adaptive for humans, right? Um, it's my view that religion would not have evolved if, if it wasn't extremely adaptive, right? And completely integral to the, the evolution of culture itself, right? And it's, you know, religious forms of expression are deeply embedded into our psychology, you know, into very, you know, all the way to the, you know, to the evolution of our brain structures, right? Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who, who, who get way into this. Um, and, you know, and, and in modernity, you know, if we're just, if we've just kind of thrown out the, if we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater, so not only thrown out the, the, the formal dogma, which is one thing, but thrown off, thrown out the contemplative way of being, cultivating a contemplative life, you know, cultivating virtue and community life and, and a shared sense of aesthetics and beauty, uh, you know, that's a recipe for the meaning crisis, right? I know like, you know, John Berbeke and, and others talk a lot about this. And, but it's, you know, it, it's tricky, right? Because, you know, religion in the past, you know, has been based on a formal set of beliefs and, you know, and, and, and you know, and some critiques that I know that kind of neo-traditionalists have of, 
these these new kind of religion without a religionist, you know, critiques that they would have of someone like John Berbeke is that, well, it's just not the same, right? If, you know, if you don't actually have a set of beliefs to ground, you know, to, to ground this, this kind of ecology of practice, then, you know, it, 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 you know, it, you know one, one analogy here is that it's like you can acknowledge that prayer has psychological benefits, but there's a big difference between praying because you know it has psychological benefits. And so you're, it's more of a performative thing to actually believing that there's somebody out there listening to you. Right. Mm. And, and so, you know, the question is, can we, you know, can we develop a set of practices that, you know, that are as meaningful to, to the, to the person who's praying, who actually believes there's God listening to them in, in kind of the traditional monotheistic sense. Right. And that's going to take a lot of creativity. Like that's, I think that's the hard problem of, you know, uh, the religion of the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think, and you've mentioned psychedelics and psilocybin. I, I, I think, you know, that, you know, for me, like I, I, so I used to be quite religious, you know, I, we were talking a little bit before I, I grew up, you know, around and particip participating in Native American church ceremonies, but I also grew up, I spent a lot of time, especially in my late teens and twenties in the Baha'i faith. Um, and wait, where was I going with that? <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. That's okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, 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 I, and, and, and so I, I consider myself as having a, a very, in general, I have a deep religious sensibility. I, I, I resonate a lot with religious texts in general. And, and it's, 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 it's very meaningful to me, but I also have a, you know, kind of a, a modern, you know, scientific skeptical mind as well that, that, you know, I, I developed as I was kind of transitioning out of the Baha'i faith. But, you know, for me in terms of like, like how can you have meaning, a meaningful, you know, kind of um, set of practices that is not naive or is not, you know, um, in contradiction with the latest science and things like that. I mean, for me, it's like, I, I you know, I think, there's a form of naturalism that is, is kind of broadly defined in terms of, you know, I mean, just the statement that, you know, we are a subset of the universe that's awake, you know, becoming aware of itself, you know, like that's, that's a statement that's hard to contradict in terms of kind of, you know, in, in, you know, by say a new atheist or something like that, but it's something that to me is deeply meaningful. Right. And, um, you know, if you actually grok and, you know, feel this notion that like, I am, you know, a part of the universe that's looking at itself, right. And observing itself like that to me is like, I mean, that's, that's far out. Right. <laughs> and yet it's not, you know, it's not unscientific either. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of psychedelics, I think that's what kind of, at least in my experience, that's and in, in deep, you know, contemplative or meditative practice, you know, these peak experiences are these experiences of, you know, what I would call broadly non-duality, you know, of seeing, you know, ourselves as not separate from nature or others, the environment, but kind of like, you know, part of this kind of natural flow of nature, you know, so that's when I, when I say I, I'm kind of a, you know, a naturalist, a non-dual 
naturalist, that's what I mean. Um, now, do I think that, you know, the soul goes on after death or, you know, there's uh, you know, all of that stuff. Like I used to, that stuff used to torture me to think, to think about. Um, and now I just don't really care. Right. Like, you know, for me, the, the notion of not existing, like, like if, if I've identified with the universe itself, then, then this particular lens on itself of the, you know, of which the universe is or, or nature is observing itself. If that blips out, like that's actually not that big of a deal because I, I'm no, I'm more identified with the larger process and the larger system than with my own separate self. Anyway, that was all a kind of a tangent. <laughs> oh, this is a very rich, very rich vein. Um, and try and hold all the different sub veins that <laughs> came up for me while you're talking about it, but. Uh, there's something about those um, those non-dual states um, in which your your selfhood becomes kind of melted into um, everything else uh, after you've had those experiences and when you kind of frequently entertain your non-being and it just completely changes your relationship to it. So whatever this new container is, um, that sense of like felt humility um, and relationship to mystery seems to me to be something that would be kind of fundamental um, and not, you know, not at the, the cliche truism of something beyond, but the felt sense of something beyond um try and take it all the way back now it was something about so i mean this question for me has been perhaps realizing as things go on kind of central to my life as well um i grew up in a christian christian community until i was like nine or ten my dad was like super involved, like a minister in a, a it was kind of eighties, um, nineties, like Christian Christian rock and like <laughs> a lot of like this stuff. Yeah. And, um, then I went through the whole thing of agnostic and new atheist. Um, and then kind of finding my own way to something akin to spirituality through an altogether different path, kind of like uh, yourself and people like John Viveki, where you've kind of gone and you've had these experience, these mystical experiences, uh, experiences with psychedelics, but also you delve into practice and you delve into philosophy, some sort of integration of Eastern, um, of Buddhism, of Buddhist mm. ways of thinking, and then eventually seems to be a return to and a revisiting to the Christian lineage. Um, mm. But for me, I've kind of conceived of that increasingly in a developmental sense as like when you kind of have, you have the family and you have the father of the family and the father in this case is kind of Christianity or the Christian lineage and i've kind of viewed it in the sense of like well, there's a kind of necessary 
um, rebellion against or moving against, moving away from home to like establish mm -hmm. oneself. And then you can kind of like, you know, when you grow older, you tend to sort of revisit your childhood and revisit your past and so forth. Um, so, I mean, without downplaying the situation that we're in collectively, um, it seems to me that that what happened in the Western lineage was something like we pursued truth to the point of killing God. Um, and there are other traditions where that didn't happen. Um, if we kind of conceive of religions as mimetic, as mimetic complexes, um, like really, really rich mimetic complexes that go down mm -hmm. to the level of how you wash and how you pray and uh, what you do with marriage and how you relate to one another, how you do taxation, how you conduct yourself in war. Um, I spent many years kind of trying to understand Islam and Islam and modernity and how the two interacted. Mm. And Islam is like a like all encompassing by nature. So you really get the sense yeah. of the mimetic organism. Um, But in that in that case, for me at least, it, it felt like the the orientation of the mimetic complex was towards its its own maintenance rather than pursuit of truth. Like it wouldn't um, mm -hmm. kill its god in pursuit of of truth, so to speak. So, setting that um, fiery topic aside. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It's immensely, yeah. I mean, so the last thing I'll just add is that that kind of revisiting after having gone through, having gone through the going away and the questioning and the total skepticism to the point of rejection and the finding spirituality in other places um, and then coming back is what I've found is much more of an appeal of sort of... Um, archetypal and like artistic like i found the value of like literature concerning religious mm. topics much more than scripture and the kind of like all of those like cultural layers that we've built of like artistic interpretation and nuance mm. and storytelling um as like a much more appealing way to relate to that and i've got no desire to go back to that kind of like scriptural inerrancy like the idea of an errant, inerrant text to me is like a disaster mm -hmm. for any kind of cultural evolution right right yeah it's the difference between a living tradition and a dead tradition or or continuing you know a tradition that's that's within kind of the husk um you know it's it's within a, a dead vessel so to speak um yeah. I mean, and I, it's interesting, you know, we can get into like the whole discussion of scriptural interpretation and stuff. And, you know, there's, you know, you, you mentioned you, you grew up as a Christian, you know, and I know, and you, you probably know a lot more than me about this, but, you know, there's certain passages that, that, that talk about, 
you know, you shall now add to this book. Whoever adds to this book is, you know, an, you know, a, a, basically a blasphemer. Uh, but then you have also analogies of like new wine and old wineskins, right? Um, and uh, basically, and you know, the way I interpret that, that's from, you know, Jesus. Uh, and, you know, basically the statement is you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And the way I interpret that is that, you know, you, you, like you can't put kind of a new revelation of truth into, you know, an old structure, right? A set of institutions, religious structures. And, and I think some certain religions have adapted, you know, much better than others, right? Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people are kind of, we, we had a, we had a person on our podcast who also grew up, he, he grew up Baptist, became kind of went down the new atheist track and, and now he's an Orthodox Christian, but he's very, you know, he's very nuanced about it. And, you know, he loves Verbeke and, you know, he's part of, you know, this whole kind of, uh, sense making community. Um, and, you know, it's for him, it's like, there's this interesting dialectic of, you know, he would say, I'm not, you know, I accept like the Nicene Creed or, you know, whatever the equivalent of that is for Orthodox. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's the same, um, but how it's, you know, I think he would say like how it's interpreted, how it's related to, you know, um, is, is kind of, you know, an ongoing process, you know, and, and so it's, there's also this, there's also this concept that I really like of enabling constraint where, you know, I think, you know, one way to approach um, meaning making is you do give yourself a set of constraints, and this could be a set of religious constraints. But, you know, because you have that, you know, it actually somehow enables you to be more creative, because, you know, it's, it's kind of like it's, it's focusing you in a bit, right? And, and, and you're able, you know, and you're actually, um, you know, able to, you know, at least according to this idea, you're able to do much more because uh, you have kind of boundary object, I don't think is the right word, but you, you, you have kind of like this stable structure that you can relate to and continue to relate to. Um, so that's one way, that's one way to approach it. Um, you know, I think we need a plurality of experiments, right? Like mm. I mean, me personally, I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't, these days I don't associate with any tradition. You know, I have my own DIY set of contemplative practices that I've patched together from many different sources. Um, and so I'm very DIY myself, but I, I don't think that's the path for everybody. Um, and especially if you're trying to create community life, um, you know, that there, I think there needs to be this, this process of, you know, and, this process of, of developing new rituals and and new new sets of psychotechnologies um new new ways of relating to each other um and it's really you know it's it's really trial and error right like a lot of these experiments have failed um you know these you hear about 60s and 70s and these communes and and cults and you know they, they didn't do so well uh, and, you know, but the nice thing about today is that we have all the history to learn from, you know, and hopefully not repeat the same mistakes. Uh, 
but you know i also think for some people you know at least in from a you know bringing in a new term here a meta modern perspective you know and, and this is akin a developmentally meta modern perspective there's different uses of that term but and this is kind of akin to integral right um uh, is that you know there's these kind of stages of cultural evolution and stages of personal development you know now some people argue that whether they're linear or not and, and all that putting that aside you know you're transcending but you're you're, you're also including mm-hmm. um and you know from my perspective a lot of people have transcended you know things but um they haven't included and that's actually worse than than transcending in the first place right um and a lot of you know a lot of people like i, I I think, for example, somebody like Daniel Ingram, he was talking about this on a podcast once. He's a, he's a pragmatic Dharma, really, really well-known meditation teacher. Um, but he was saying like, you know, after a while he, he was raised in like the sciences and kind of secular and, um, and, and after a while he realized he needed to reconnect with like his magical mythic, you know, self, right. And, and really explore those areas, which is, you know, at least if you're looking at it linearly is an earlier stage, but, you know, it still needs to be developed and it still, you know, it still needs to be explored and, and brought into the present. Um, yeah. I mean, that really feels congruent with the, with the kind of like family, familial, personal life metaphor that we were playing with before of like, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to be a very well, integrated person if you leave home go to college have all these new experiences throw yourself into this new cultural milieu and then you just like ignore what happened for the first 18 years of your life or anything so it's like we have to know where we're from and certainly in the, in the context of the west now it's it seems to me that that's a big raging issue um underlying I've heard a lot of interesting interesting arguments that some of the kind of puritanical um, aspects of the movements we're seeing now is is related in some way to the to the lack of consciousness of the Christian substrate and that these are kind of similar to to moments that were acted out in sort of medieval Christianity at various times like splitting off like the, uh, the Anabaptists and stuff in Europe. Um, but it does feel, it feels to me that there is this real, like, I can't remember what you, you called it like a religious, um, what did you say at the beginning that you had a religious, uh, sensibility, sensibility. Mm-hmm. Just the just the desire to come into some sort of communion with a group of people in in the full authenticity of yourself. If you can somehow work in really everybody having relationship to cosmos as well, mm-hmm. and like ecstatic bonding experiences and like safety wires to avoid culty and exploitative mm-hmm. exploitative mm-hmm. behaviors kicking in oh mm-hmm. my god that would be great mm-hmm. that would be great mm-hmm. i've had like intonations of it and like little experiences on retreats and stuff and it's just like you yeah. are able to realize like 
yourself in the context of, of being with these people and like coming out there. Yeah, kind of this feeling, I, I have a, a strong sense of this feeling as well from my Baha'i days. You know, it's kind of like you're kind of all aligned, you know, like you, you, you're kind of all aligned towards a, towards a single purpose while also, at least in the high context, you know, respecting diversity. Um, you know, one of the, one of the phrases of my faith is unity and diversity. Um, and so it's, it's like this balance of, you know, finding this kind of commonality between us, but, but then not, you know, not using that to, to oppress individual expressions and, you know, and individual explorations and creativity. Um, and I think, you know, when you see cult like behavior, you, you know, you see this, it's, it's, to me, it's like this imbalance of, you know, or even political, you know, you, you, when you see fascism or communism, you know, in the 20th century, you know, these are all examples of this kind of beatific vision that people had, but that vision, was then, you know, used as a blanket to smother, you know, anything that could arise, you know, <laughs> that was outside of those very, you know, strictures. Um, and then of course, you know, you can have the other extreme imbalance of no coherence at all. Um, I mean, for me personally, like, like, so kind of a little bit of my path. I mean, one reason why I was so attracted you know, after I kind of stopped being a Baha'i, I went through a few years of kind of agnostic and or nihilistic. And then I, I started getting involved with um, meditation and the pragmatic uh, Buddhist scene, um, at least remotely. I was just, I was pretty isolated. I was just kind of doing my own practices. Um, was that it didn't require a set of beliefs a priori. Um, you know, it, it was all about, you know, what, what is the nature of your experience? Like how, you know, um, you know, what is like, instead of describe your beliefs, describe your phenomenology. Right. And that was a really useful phase for me to go through. Um, whereas now, you know, I have a, I, I, I'm also coming back around to an interest in, you know, mythology and, and mythos and the creation of new mythologies um, and religious sensibility. Uh, but it's coming from a more playful place. Like it doesn't have the same existential seriousness that it did in the past. And I think a lot of this was kind of, you know, you know, to a significant degree overcoming fear of death, you know, um, much more than I had, you know, before. Uh, and, you know, it, it, that kind of freed me up of, of, of being okay with non-existence, the idea of non-existence or death. Um, that freed me up to, to kind of joyfully engage with, you know, with, with our, you know, kind of collective inheritance, which is all of these really dense uh, metaphors and stories that guided, you know, the evolution of human culture for thousands of years and still have a lot of wisdom, even if they, they need to be brought into a new context. That was a really big insight. <laughs> <laughs> a really big one. Um, holy shit. Just like the notion of 
that the weight of the existential fear of the the large body of of uh of followers of of the main world religions is mm-hmm. so it's such a distort like such a shaping and distorting and contortioning force on uh, you know it makes sense because that's in a sense what the religion serves to purports to respond to but the mm-hmm. fear itself must be the root on, of that of that such deep attachment to the form of the narrative um you know any any change to it is is so threatening to to one's own like ego almost mm-hmm. so if, if there was a way that we could like give people this if you can get people past the gate, yeah. so to speak, through these experiences, which don't require any doc, any doctrinal sign-up sheet. On the other side of that, then it's possible to have this more creative, you know, playful thing and kind of draw in like those understandings from fiction where it's like we're constantly paying tribute to, but also like things are changing in the like relationship to past is changing in present and wow. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you a, just a kind of a, a story, a personal story. It's kind of an aside, but I remember uh, I was, when I was a few years ago, I was in a, my heavy meditation phase. I was gunning for what's called stream entry in the Theravadan tradition, which is basically, you know, considered the first stage of awakening. Um, and I had this deep fear, like whenever I felt like I was approaching that, that place, you know, and there's like this, you know, according to a certain, certain Theravadan traditions, there's what's called the progress of insight, which is basically kind of tries to map out stages of stages you go through a meditation to, you know, towards, towards awakening. And, and I, and I was noticing myself going, you know, at least self-diagnosing myself through some of these stages, you know, I could have been deluding myself. Uh, but I, this fear arose that, you know, and this was kind of, you know, baggage from my religious past and uh, of, of if I get stream entry, which is kind of like, you know, one way to describe it is you kind of lose a part of your sense of self. Right. And I, and, and I, my fear was that I would lose my soul. Like that was like, that would like, like this was kind of some trickster, demonic thing that was you know basically encouraging people to you know to give away their souls uh and this was a deep fear and 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 it's also roots you know so the baha'i faith is not big on like you know fire and brimstone hell stuff but even when i was a baha'i i was very engaged with you know christian text because i i i had you know i had a fear that you know this kind of radical uncertainty uh, that what if, you know, what if these fundamentalist Christians are right and I'm going to go to hell for not, you know, and that was a deep fear. And so, and, and that was even, even after I'd been kind of agnostic, you know, whatever, that the sense of like losing my ticket to salvation was still very much a part of me. And, you know, and, and so one thing I started doing is I started doing these visualizations where I would imagine myself falling into the depths of hell you know, eternally, you know, and like, like I would actually try and, you know, you know, mimic what that experience, you know, actually like, you know, imagining it and over and over again, you know, to, um, 
you know, to, to basically, you know, get to the state where even if that happened, you know, even if I, A, died and, you know, that's it and non-existence forever, or, you know, I get thrown into the pits of hell, like that would still be okay. Right. And so for me, it took, it, it was quite a journey to get, you know, to go through that process of, you know, of, of kind of overcoming that existential weightiness of if I need to get the right answer, I must, right. I, I must figure out the correct path. Um, uh, and, you know, I had to go through this whole kind of sometimes harrowing process to, for me to get through that where, you know, now it's just, like it's, you know, I still, I still have anxiety and sometimes and certain fear of death, but it, it's, 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 a, it's much more kind of manageable and, and something that I, you know, it doesn't drive my behavior, you know, or my neuroticism as it did before. Yeah. Do you, do you have a feeling that that's like an sort of, that that fear is, that would not be there were it not implanted? Like in another sense, as you're raising children, that children could be raised to not be uh, not be imbibed with this this. Like like, how much of it do you put down yeah. to the actual theology well, that the kids are getting? Well, we have to consider that you know these belief structures evolved in the first place to serve a need, right? And so I think you know, and if we look at other organisms, the fear of death is pretty ever present, right? Like a rabbit does not want to die. It does not want to be eaten. It runs as fast as it can to get away. It, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it feels fear, extreme fear, right? Mm. Um, you know, and this is, so this, so there's reason to believe that this goes very, very deep into our past, you know, pre-human, um, you know, probably to the origins of life itself, right? Uh, you know, and so I think, I think there is definitely, you know, if you're raised with a hellfire and damnation context, that will definitely accentuate and reinforce it. And, you know, it, it will make it, it could make it more difficult. But I, but I think even children raised in, you know, in this, these ideal families or cultures will still have to go through their own process of, you know, their own existential process of, you know, perhaps differentiation, differentiating themselves from the group, um, you know, and, and some kind of, you know, different traditions describe it different ways, but, you know, you can describe it as some kind of, you know, personal awakening where, um, you know, you, you, to some degree, you overcome this core existential fear. Um, but, you know, without, of course, I think some, sometimes people critique like meditation as, oh, well, if you, you know, if you just, be, you know, become awakened and you're, you're not fearful anymore, then you're not going to be very effective, you know, or, or you're just going to die because you don't, you don't have this natural fear response. And, and I think, you know, so the trick is to, to be able to, you know, like there's, I think there's a difference between this existential kind of weightiness versus, you know, not being closed off from our humanity and, and still receiving, you know, those signals and, and, uh, and, and, and allowing it to, you know, to direct you to a more skillful behavior and to be responsive uh, to your environment. Um, yeah, yeah. I know you've got to dip out in a little bit, but 
if you've got a few more minutes, I, this is like budging on like a kind of central paradox or something that keeps like coming up in my conversations, which is how, and I think it's probably just down to language itself, articulating it, but it's like that sense of how do you have, how does not like, how does recognizing how do you have all of your skin in the game whilst recognizing the game itself or something mm. like that? And then there's this, mm. there's a sense I also see in the converse of like people who are holding on to the paradise notion, especially in contexts mm. where it's like very real, like it's going to be me in my body mm. in a house in paradise. Um, mm -hmm. That seems to like, well, it, it functions as a control mechanism as much as anything, but it also, it seems to me, reduces the skin in the game in some way, or at least mm. it's like the skin in the game is oriented towards the achievement of that outcome rather than, mm. like in some way, like the embrace of death seems to bring on like, how, how can I fully manifest my self potential create creativity like in this life mm -hmm. i don't know if that was even a question <laughs> i'll throw it back yeah um well you started with how do you have you know skin in the game while it's while not being um you know what the way I interpret what you're saying is, is, is basically how do you cultivate metacognition while being embodied? And this is, you know, this is kind of a favorite hobby horse of mine of the, the need to like, you need to kind of, it needs to be a feedback loop of, you know, having some kind of this awakening that's, that's kind of transcendent in a way um, that's, you know, like, this is not me, this is not mine. This is just the flow of nature, you know, um, death is, you know, LOL death, right? Uh, versus uh, actually, then you need to embody it. And you need to actually, you know, do emotional processing. Like, this is something that I think um, a lot of, you know, kind of people gunning for awakening, enlightenment, etc. Like, this is a mistake that's been made, is that there's not this reintegration period, this waking down, somebody has described it, mm -hmm. um, where you do have to access, you do have to re-submerge yourself, you know, um, into your emotions, into, you know, uh, and, and you need to be able to process them. Uh, but the difference from prior to say, some kind of awakening experience is, is that there's still, you know, it, it's hard to describe. It's something, you know, I think that, you know, you really have to experience it to fully, you know, appreciate, but it's like, there's a still a part of you that is aware, right? There, there is still this metacognition of like, you know, um, you're in it, but you're also observing it. Um, and so you, and so it's like, you're, you're embedded, but you're, but, but there's still some kind of mindfulness right of uh, of of what's happening and you can argue that okay well that's not full skin in the game perhaps you can argue that um but i also think that because you have that 
layer of meta awareness or the witness, you know, some people describe like witness consciousness. Um, it, it actually allows you to, to dive into like, if you're feeling really sad to actually feel sad, to actually cry, to actually feel that, but in a, in a way that's, that's, uh, it sounds so instrumental in a way that's productive and in, in, in a way that's, that's actually leading to healing. And it's not just leading you down a kind of the self-reinforcing nihilistic feedback loop, right? Like there's some kind of guardrail, you know, that's, that's maybe one, one way to describe it is like this kind of insight, metacognition, witness consciousness. It provides this guardrail where you're doing that until, you know, until it's no longer necessary. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, it's a guardrail from both, falling into your own just kind of despair and depression, but also for bad behavior, right? Um, you know, you can be angry, you can be sad, but, but, but you're also able to channel that, you know, in a way that's, that's helpful for your own development, but also, you know, uh, for your responsibility as a family member, as a community member. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question of like, is that really skin in the game? Um, you know, it's things still hurt, right? Things still bother you. Um, you know, and, and, and there's, so there's almost like a, a sweetness to it because you have that, that, you know, you know, the kind of external perspective, there's almost like the sweetness to it that, you know, you're allowing yourself to feel that and, and you're doing it not because it's, you're embedded in it so much as you're allowing yourself to be embedded in it. Not, you know, um, I mean, I, I can't, I can't help but think of, of, you know, Robert Kagan and, and how he describes from one stage to another is that, you know, you, you transition from, you know, something is part of the structure of your awareness um, to something that is within your awareness. Right. And this is a similar, I think, um, heuristic to mindfulness meditation of, you know, if something's within your awareness, it's still in a way, it's still part of the structure of your awareness and you can still, and you still have, you still have access to that. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's within a, a larger, more liberating, um, frame. So that's a long answer to basically say, I don't know, but <laughs> oh, that's really, um, really lovely. It's, it, it's becoming more clear to me as you're saying that just like having that experience of, sort of ballooning out utterly beyond the confines of yourself and then coming back in it's like those yeah. dark corners of yourself and those like buried wounds and stuff yeah that's no longer like this really it's 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 within this larger container and therefore going beyond the self makes it like easier in a sense to 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 come more fully into the truth of the self and yeah. I think that's what you see with with people who have these experiences with meditation or psychedelics or they have a terminal illness and then they recover it's like they are fully in the game with their emotions and like feeling everything fully also with this silver lining awareness of, of its like ephemerality so yeah and and i think you know it, and it's actually conducive to more awakening uh in the sense that you know uh 
from what I've, you know, from what I've noticed and, and, and to some degree in my own experience, you know, you can have an awakening experience or even you have a, you can have a, a really mind blowing experience on psychedelics. Um, and so there's a part of you that all of a sudden has seen something that it can't unsee, but the rest of your psychology hasn't caught up. Right. And so the whole waking down embodiment integration process is spreading that insight to more parts of yourself. And in order to do that, it has to kind of like dig into those parts of yourself, you know, and have this kind of cathartic release. Right. And, and to be able to have this cathartic release is easier if you have this kind of external perspective, because like there's, it's almost provides like a, a, a safe setting for it to happen. Right. Because it, because if you don't have that safe setting, then you're like, there's going to be a part of you that's, that's clinging on more because like that's, that's life and death. Right. That's our trigger kind of very biological response is life and death. But if you know, if you have that extra perspective, it, it gives you permission to dig in there into those really dark traumatic, you know, hurtful parts of ourselves and really, really get in there because there's, we know that we have a, we have a little bit of a safety net. And so, and, and, and by doing that, I, I think that more parts of our psychology, you know, and I think there's, there's many layers, right. Um, uh, you know, can become awakened that way. Okay. Well, owing to power cut, possibly by divine intervention, we had to wrap it up a few minutes early, but thanks very much to Jason for a very exciting, uh, emergent conversation and stay tuned. Got a lot of very interesting guests coming up over the next month and sure to pick up this conversation with Jason uh, another time.